Today is September 27th, 2020. We are reading from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the beginning of chapter more about alcoholism, page 30 through page 32, that first full paragraph on 32. Um, our speaker today is Pia D. from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And to reading the text today is Rita from Ireland. Um, this after the reading uh, will be followed by a 20 minute share. Good morning, Rita. Thanks for your service. Hi, good morning. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is a great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we, were, we are like other people or presently may be has to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of aggressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. We are like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like other men. We have tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there have been brief recovery, followed always by a still worse relapse. Physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree there is no such thing as making a normal drinker. Out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. Despite all we can say, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe they are in that class. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. If anyone who is showing an ability to control his drinking can do the right about face and drink like a gentleman, our hats are off to him. Heaven knows we have tried hard enough and long enough to drink like other people. Here are the some of the methods we have tried. Drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks, never drinking alone, never drinking in the morning, drinking only at home, never having it in the house, never drinking during business hours, drinking only at parties, switching from scotch to brandy, drinking only natural wines, agreeing to resign if ever drunk on the job, taking a trip, not taking a trip, swearing off forever, with and without a solemn oath, taking more physical exercise, reading inspirational books, going to health farms and sanitariums, accepting voluntary commitment to asylums. We could increase the list ad infinitum. We do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you are honest with yourself about it. 
it may be worth a bad case of jitters if you get a full knowledge of your condition. Though there is no way of proving it, we believe that early in our drinking careers, most of us could have stopped drinking. But the difficulty is that few alcoholics have enough desire to stop while there is yet time. We have heard of a few instances where people who show definite signs of alcoholism were able to stop for a long period because of an overpowering desire to do so. Here is one. Thank you so much, Rita. And now I'd like to introduce Pia D from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, that's gonna share for approximately 20 minutes on these pages. Thanks so much for your service, Pia. Thank you so much, everyone. It's great to be here. Um, as Kim said, I'm Pia from Philadelphia. And wow, it's amazing to see that there are 61 people on this call. So I'm super excited to talk about what is my absolutely favorite part of the big book, although all parts have I have fondness for. But this is the spot where I really identified in. And um, I'll just start by saying that I have six and a half, almost six and a half years of back-to-back -back continuous sobriety in the food. So I'm really grateful for that. That. And I came in in my early 40s. Um, I came in at 336 pounds, and um, I'm about 145 pounds down from there. So all of that is a miracle and beyond certainly my capabilities when I came in. And the way that I identified in with this um, section, I actually wanted to start with the end with the bar room, because I have a very clear memory that I was going with my partner to a restaurant bar. And I had I read a lot of women's magazines, whatever. And in women's magazines, they have this, you know, you should never cut anything out entirely, you should try to moderate. And I remember sort of like imagine like an old Western saloon before we like sort of crossed the threshold, making this agreement with myself that we would split a dessert because that's what the women's magazines were recommending. Um, and so I don't know if I split the dessert or not. I'm sure I'm sure probably what happened is I thought I was going to split the dessert. And then I decided, no, really, I was going to have my own dessert. But the thing that was the a clear, clear memory and helped me identify when I went back over my history that I, I was an alcoholic in the food was the fact that I ate dessert that night, but then I went on a bender for the rest of the week. And that's what I noticed. I noticed, oh, I, hmm, that's interesting. I made this agreement initially going through the doors that I was only going to eat so much. Then I sort of changed that and then but the bigger issue actually is that then i went for a whole week and i noticed that that was the kind of thing that happened to me a lot um and so i really like this part where um you just go back up to it um we can kind of we can self-diagnose ourselves right by sort of figuring that part out um, and so when i came in in, in my early 40s i had come in through outside help and I started just by kind of saying like, I think this might be an eating disorder because if I could have gotten a handle on this through books, I would have done that 20 years ago. Um, and I couldn't get a handle on it. And so after the first couple of sessions with the eating disorder specialist, I sort of was kind of going inside myself to try to figure out like, what do I really think is going on with me? And the thing that became clear to me 
before I had the word, I didn't have any words. Like I didn't have sobriety. I didn't have alcoholic foods. I didn't, but I was just sort of searching around. Um, and I realized that sugar put a wrecking ball through any plan I ever made my entire life. <laughs> that was what I noticed. And then the second thing, so then I decided to take sugar out. Um, and the very first thought that I had was, I'll never live, um, it, which was sort of hysterical and comical in retrospect, but it was very real. I mean, it felt like a very real panic feeling at the time. And I just remember saying to myself, like, Pia, that's not even true because sugar is not a food group. Um, and so I decided to try to take it out and just see what happened. And I could see my outside help kind of panicked, you know, because this, you know, some people go towards restriction, whatever. Um, but for me, what I, I noticed, you know, there's a lot of, you know, kind of saying that in the, in the sort of larger world of sort of diet culture, that binging, you know, if you restrict at least to binging, but what I realized for me is that really binging led to binging. And when I took out sugar, I could see that everything calls to me, everything I had. And I had jury duty, um, right after I took it out. And so I was, we had lunch at Reading Terminal Market and I could see that every item from the beginning, from, there's, uh, if you're not from, Reading Terminal Market is a huge food market um, of prepared foods. And I could see that from the beginning to the end of that market, everything called to me. And I could also see that if I had been picking up sugar during that time, I would have been ferreting things away in my pockets like a little hamster. And I just thought that was sort of curious that I would do that. And like, why would I do that after I had just eaten lunch, right? So it couldn't have been hunger. So I just started, you know, paying attention to those types of things. Um, and with time, what I started to realize, so there was, um, at the top, it says our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove that we could drink like other people. So those were all my attempts to be moderate or all my attempts to um, be at a friend's house, eat, you know, what they were, mimic what they were eating, and then head home and chow down on like everything that I felt like. Now that never seemed particularly odd to me. Um, I just sort of thought like, you know, well, I want more. So what, what's the big deal? And I, I remember my outside help early on asking me if I lied to my partner about what I ate. And I realized that I didn't know if I lied to my partner. I have a long commute and, you know, I was eating things on the road. I didn't know really that if that was a lie. But, but what was clear to me, and it was like a little, like one of those cartoon light bulbs came up over my head, um, is that I was lying to myself because my fridge was stocked with one set of foods Kale was not an unusual visitor <laughs> in that refrigerator. Um, but then what was happening is I had this long commute. I wasn't eating breakfast before I left. And then I was, you know, stopping ostensibly for breakfast, but I would go through the drive through and I would, I have very clear memories of thinking I was going to order one thing. And then by the end of the routine, you know, the route through the drive through I had ordered three additional things. Right. And I think because the commute was so long, I, I, even I could see that something was off kilter. I didn't really know what was off kilter, but what I would say in retrospect is that it was two tons of sugar off kilter is what it was. <laughs> so I would order like a breakfast sandwich and then an extra large hot chocolate. And that, you know, it just sort of went on and on. And, um, and, and so, you know, 
I had no idea how to eat like a normal person. And I had before this gone, you know, many years before this gone to a dietitian. And I, I remember looking at the serving sizes and literally thinking, A, it was fiction. And B, it was a plot by the government to keep me down. Like, I, ju I just couldn't relate to a half cup of anything. Um, and I wasn't, I would say now in retrospect that I was a binge eater, but I didn't identify it as binge eating because it, I was grazing. So I was eating all day long. Um, it was nothing for me to pack away a sleeve of this and a package of that. Um, but it just never really occurred to me that that maybe could be considered binging until I started exploring it through um, eating disorder recovery. Um, and then there came a moment, it says, when we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic, this is the first step in recovery. And for me, that step, I ended up going away to inpatient treatment, but that step came when I had cleaned up my food with the help of the outside help, a dietitian, um, I had medical help, so all, everything was sort of a la carte and everything looked good. Um, the therapist was giving me a thumbs up, the nutritionist was giving me a thumbs, thumbs up, and then I made five pounds of sweet potatoes in one of those advice columns like that you should make, all, you make it for the week or whatever, and I ate the entire tray of sweet potatoes over the course of the day. Now, it was just, so I did a lot of popping. Now, popping, I realize now is compulsive. <laughs> But again, like I'm just, you know, I, I don't, I, I have no framework for this. So I would just walk by the tray of roasted sweet potatoes and pop one in my mouth. And then it turns out if you do that all day long, the entire tray disappears. And I remember standing in our living room thinking, you know, I've been here before. So the, the great thing about coming in in my 40s was that I had had a series of attempts that like it talks about to clean things up. Right. And then I would, you know, I wasn't really in recovery, so I don't know if it would count per se as a relapse, but what would happen is I would, I would sort of try to clean it up and then swing wildly back to the other side of the spectrum and eat, 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 eat. Um, and so I realized that I had been in this place before that it was not for me at that point about whether I could eat a vegetable because I most certainly could eat a vegetable and I liked vegetables, but it, it was about the fact that I noticed that for me, what would happen is was was an issue around volume um and so you know our addiction can take various forms you know the the drug of choice from for me sugar and flour is one form but volume was the other piece of it and so what i realized for myself is that um i was standing in the living room and i thought you know i think there's something called sobriety in the food and this is not it <laughs> That's what I realized. And, and so I can, because I felt shaky and I, I felt like that I could, I would be the person who the first day would have um, a bowl of oatmeal. The second day I would add banana. The third day I would add banana and walnuts. The fourth, I could just see it kind of getting, and, you know, it's, and suddenly, you know, it's just enormous. Um, and, and so I went back to my outside help and I said um, that, I wanted to go somewhere. Um, I wanted to go to treatment. I needed to be told what to do. Um, and now, mind you, at this point in my life, I'm kind of thinking of treatment as summer camp, but you know, whatever, whatever gets you there, whatever gets you through the door. Um, and I can see now that this is why they make you go to rehab right away because I had about uh, two weeks before I got there. And then I started thinking like, well, is this really necessary? Isn't this like a little bit overkill? But 
I found that for me that it was absolutely necessary. Um, the delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. And one of the funniest moments of that smashing was I had this dream in which I got this really beautiful multi-tiered um, box of pralines like chocolates or whatever. And I, I, I want to say someone gave them to me. It may very well been that I bought them for myself, right? So, and I am, I'm in the dream and I have opened the first tier and I'm just going to experiment, like what we call an AA is like doing more research. I'm just going to experiment with eating one and seeing if I can do the intuitive eating thing where ultimately I'll be full and I'll say no more, right? Um, and so I eat one and I'm like, do I feel like stopping? And I was like, no. And then two and three. And so I ate the whole layer of 12, don't feel like stopping. Um, and then I realized in the dream that there's no way that I will ever stop, that I'll ever feel like stopping unless I feel ill. And even then it would only be temporary, um, a temporary stop. <laughs> so those were some of the things that convinced me that I was, I call myself an alcoholic in the food just to keep it so clear. Um, and, and so those were some of the things that helped me see like, oh, even in my dream, I, I went to, my sister's really into organic everything. And I went to this organic boutique and I picked up, listen to this, y'all, an organic, like a knit cookie, knit, out of knitting, out of yarn. And that night I had a relapse dream. So that's how I know <laughs> that this thing really uh, works, works on me. Um, and I know that I, you know, even, you know, I, real, I still, I go to a lot of AA meetings, partly because I need to remind myself that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. Um, all of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals usually brief or inevitably followed by still less control. And I think also when we get down to the part about all the things that we tried, I mean, all the things that we tried, I, I wasn't particularly a good dieter or particularly a good exerciser, but I certainly had periods where it seemed like those were gonna be my solutions. If I could just kind of get on the right plan, if I could just exercise enough, um, then I could really lick this problem. And I found that that just was never, ever, ever true um, in, my, in my experience. Um, and so this is my other favorite section, which is these are the methods that we've tried, drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks, never drinking alone, drinking in the morning. And I, I, in my, I don't have my big book on me um, because I'm not at home, but I have gone through this and like replaced all of the things that I did with, with this list here, right? And one of my favorite things to do was to sub out ingredients. Um, and I subbed out ingredients for 10 years, but it made absolutely no difference on my health and weight because um, I was a compulsive reader. So I would just, I would sub out the ingredients and then compulsively eat the substitutions. <laughs> so, the, you know, and, and part of it was just because, you know, we're so saturated with diet culture that those are kind of seen as the solutions. Um, and so I was often trying those and um, uh, drinking only, so this was, you know, drinking only natural wines for me, it was, you know, maybe I would eat organic, um, agreeing to resign if ever drunk on the job. I think for me, this was more like denial. Like, what does it matter that I just ate all of this food and not am on my job? It's not a crime. It's America. I mean, I, I went to a lot of those kinds of thinking, um, taking a trip, not taking a trip, swearing off forever, um, taking more physical exercise, reading inspirational books. When I, when I got back from treatment, I realized that no one should have as much self-help as I did. 
did. Um, and I was just such a big consumer in general, like consume. So the way we do our eating disorder is often the way that we do life. And so the way that I did food is how I did the rest of my life. So I would read the self-help book and then throw it over my shoulder and pick up the next one and never implement anything that was in the book. Um, and what has changed since coming into recovery is that I can read advice and take it. Um, I can listen to other people. But the other thing that I would do is, you know, say, help me, help me, help me, and then disregard any help that was offered, right? Like I would sort of be there, like saying technically that I wanted help, but not able to um, follow it. Um, I was also what I called creative. And when I was in treatment, one of the first things that happened is that the nutritionist gave me the food plan. And I was thinking, you know, we could do it this way, but we could also do it this other way. And somehow in that moment, I said, Pia, first of all, you flew all the way down here. Okay, fine. Um, thank you. Um, first of all, you flew all the way down here. And second of all, you're asking her for the food plan and now you're going to reject it. And third of all, actually, if you look, I was able to look at my pattern and see that it didn't matter who gave me a plan, including myself, I would change it, change it again, change it again, change it again, change it again. Right. And so I decided to just do what she told me to do for one, you know, and I could see that that was actually defiance. It was cute defiance maybe, but it was still absolute defiance like most addicts have. Um, and, and so then, um, you know, I, in this process um, of, you know, it, it, it goes back to where I started, which is the bar room. Um, I was able to see for me that taking out sugar into my horror flour, because I wasn't bargaining on that when I went to treatment. But anyway, um, taking out sugar and flour for me has been the solution because it's relieved that that and the 12 steps have relieved the spirit, the obsession. Um, and so I really, you know, that has been lifted. Um, and I also know that I'm a food alcoholic because even the thought of eating two 1950s cookies, you know, like the, the little, like the, the regular serving of them enrages me so much that I would just rather not eat them at all. And only a food addict would say something ridiculous like that. Right. Um, and I can also see myself kind of bargaining with that but uh, oh well it's not, not two I could have three. Oh, three is not enough I should have four um, it's America you know how are you impeding on my civil freedoms to have as many as much as I want and the last thing I'll say is I left treatment um, not knowing if I could get an hour or a day or you know 24 hours um, and um, but what really helped me is that I, even though, you know, we are a one day at a time program, um, I just said to myself, I'm going to do everything you guys tell me to do for a year and then I'll question it a year later. So I came in May 12th, 2014, and I was not allowed to question anything until May 12th, 2015. Um, and I really needed that because I was a person who would debate higher power with you. I would debate the food plan with you. I would debate. And so then when I got to May 12, 2015, and I look back, I had made so many strides in recovery that I could say that it worked um, and, and was working. And so, you know, when I got out of treatment, I, you know, obviously started going to meetings. I got a sponsor, you know, all those things. Um, but I could also see like the physical recovery. And then I'll just close with saying, you know, the spiritual and emotional recovery have been much slower. 
Um, and they sort of like just, you know, and I just keep the faith that as long as I stay physically sober, that other sobriety, those will catch up. Um, I was in the food for a long time. And so it's just going to take me a long time to, to get fully out of everything. Um, and I heard someone on, a, on one of the OA podcasts say that he considered anyone 10 years and under a baby. And that was very reassuring. <laughs> I'm still in babyhood. So there's, there's no pressure. Um, and so I, 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 it's been really wonderful to share with you guys this morning. I, I think I'll stop here. Thank you so much, Pia. We'll stop the recording now.